How many of you guys are looking forward to November when we get to choose a new president? Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. What a choice. I'm not here to try to convince you either way on who to vote for, but I would like to draw your attention to the potential impact one person can have. Regardless who wins, either presidency will have a direct and potentially serious uh, impact on our lives. When the character and lives of both candidates are considered, many people feel we are making the choice between the lesser of two evils. Given the state of our country, there's little faith in the current establishments to get, get us back to this perceived track, and so it has left many with little to no hope. Now, my point today is not to talk to politics, not really, because politics tends to have this negative vibe. But what I'd like instead for us to do is discuss the life or the impact a single devoted life of God can have on people, a nation, and even the world. We are in week four of our devoted series, and if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel 18. Uh, before we get into the text, let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that you've granted us in the wake of so much violence, Lord God. We wonder what is there to do. But how fitting is it, Lord God, that we look to your word this morning. We're in the right place. We're at the right time. We have sung songs to you, and we pray, Lord, that they have been pleasing. And so now we gather around your throne, Lord, and ask that you would teach us. Show us the way. For these are dark times, and we need your light. Illuminate us so that we can be that light for this world that is going so dark. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this, we would see as life in David, we will get some kind of example, some kind of spark that we can take away today. So I ask, Lord, that you empower me. Help everything that you want to be said be brought out of my mouth and to the hearts of your people. Thank you for all that you do for us. We know we don't lose hope because we have Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay. Allow me to read the first five verses of 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan then took his robe where he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Now, for those of you who may not be very familiar with the book, 1 Samuel is not always following a chronological order. For the large majority of the time, it is. The story of David and Goliath is an example. At the end of chapter 17, it seemed as if Saul didn't know who David was. But the end of chapter 16, David was Saul's armor bearer. Now, it would not make much sense to you if you were not familiar with the context in which the author was writing. His main goal is to show the rise of David, God's anointed, from a poor shepherd boy to the king of Israel. He lays out his accounts thematically at times, which sometimes trumps chronology. You find this in chapter 18 as well. The first five verses 
are basically a summary. It covers a passage of time. How long, we're not sure, but what you will see is the points that he makes in his summary, they will play out as the narrative continues. Now let's start with verse 1. After David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was clearly taken with David. They formed an instant connection and they became very close friends. Saul, as was his habit, made David a part of the royal court and did not allow him to go back to his family. While there, David and Jonathan make a covenant. Uh, And we're told this was at Jonathan's behest because he was so taken with, with David. So much so that Jonathan begins to give him everything, his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan must have really loved David. Whatever mission David had gone on, he found great success. Now remember that term, great success, because we're going to discuss that a little bit more later. Now you need to know that there are those who read into this passage a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David. Nothing can be further from the truth. You have to keep in mind that context determines meaning. When you do not understand the context, you do not get the meaning. So allow me to give you the context. Now, anytime I approach scripture, I usually ask myself questions to help zero in on what is going on in this passage. Now, two obvious questions are here, right up front. What did David say, and why did Jonathan react the way he did? We'll get to what did David say, we'll get to that a little later. But I believe that the reason that Jonathan responded the way he did was because David did for him, with his words, what David did last week to the army with his actions. He re-sparked hope for Israel. Let me explain. See, Jonathan was both a man of faith and, pretty, and a pretty pr- impressive warrior in his own right. But because of where we picked up in the book, we don't get to see any of his exploits. But back in chapter 14, there was another skirmish between Israel and the Philistines. Here, Jonathan sneaks away from the main army with his armor bearer. He tells his armor bearer, hey, look, numbers don't mean anything to God. He can say with a lot or he can say with a little, or in other words, just the two of us. Let's see what happens if we go and take on these uncircumcised. He doesn't refer to them as Philistines. He just calls them uncircumcised. But that's a similar sentiment that we saw from David last week, right? Now, Jonathan scales a rock face, kills 20 Philistines, God gets involved, shakes up the Philistine camps by causing an earthquake, and they put the entire army to flight. Jonathan was the man, okay? But he was also the crown prince. And with a man who is both a man of faith and a capable warrior, Israel's future, it looked pretty sharp. But unfortunately, as Ed pointed out for us three weeks ago, Saul had a bad habit of disobedience. He was prone to unwise decisions, and he even did something to jeopardize the relationship between him and his son, Jonathan. In chapter 15, the chapter we started this series with, Saul is flatly rejected as king, and another is promised to take his place. This has huge implications for Jonathan. In the pronouncements against Saul, Samuel said that the Lord was tearing the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to a neighbor who was better. This clearly meant that the kingdom was changing families. We don't know how much of this Jonathan was aware of, but if he knew, it may have left him despondent 
and deflated. Now, for one who had such great faith and was such a capable warrior, he was conspicuously silent in the battle with Goliath. Now, after listening to David, I believe Jonathan's hope was rekindled. Here was a young man who had great faith and was a, had a killer instinct. David was so brave that he took on a nine-and-a-half-foot giant with a sling and a stone and won. Even better, he attributed his victory to God. And I believe that Jonathan saw in David a light brighter than his own, a light that could lead Israel, a light that led, I mean, a lead where his father failed, and he had no problem aligning himself with David. And we even see evidence in this in the way the author writes. His wording is key, so we need to pay attention. First, after listening to David, Jonathan then reacts. But it says he became one in spirit with David. This is purpose, not pleasure. It goes on to say that he loved him as his own soul. This is deep affection, no doubt. But it carries a sense of deep loyalty. Jonathan realized that the hope of Israel no longer rested with his family. It would rest with David. And instead of being antagonistic, he chose to align himself with David. In actuality, he was aligning himself with God because David was God's man. This is why there's this covenant between them. And after spending more and more time with David, Jonathan became convinced of David's future. And now we can but understand why Jonathan gave David his robe his armor, and all the rest of the accoutrements. He is abdicating to David. This gesture was symbolic of his abdication to David. It was recognition that someone greater was present, and Jonathan was willing to both submit and pledge his loyalty to David. Now watch as we go further in the story. In the weeks to come, you'll see Jonathan is ever the encourager and ever the supporter of David. Never is there even the slightest hint of jealousy or animosity from Jonathan. You see how the context of this section determines its meaning? This is not about homosexuality. It's about the hope of Israel in her newly anointed king. Now remember this, because this is my first point. Just as the context of the book determines the meaning of our passage, so too a devoted life to God maintains the proper context in which it lives. So, in speaking to what Ed said today, let me give you a better understanding of what proper context means, because it could sound a little nebulous. A proper context is the understanding that God has a plan for humanity. We get to participate in that plan by submitting our lives to him in the execution of his plan. Can I read that again for you? A proper context is the understanding that God has a plan for humanity we get to participate in that plan by submitting our lives to him in execution of his plan. That's what Jonathan did. It was clear that David was God's man, and he fell in line with the program. Now, you may be thinking how living in the proper context actually plays out in our lives. Okay? And what we'll see from these, this chapter, we'll see, there's many, but we'll see three in particular. We'll see how it the proper context affects our conversations, our conduct, and as well as our craft. You guys with me still? If you all say amen. amen. Okay, let's take a look at how the proper context affects our conversations. I'm going to go back to the conversation that David had with Saul, and I'm going to answer that first question. 
What Jonathan heard from David was most likely a wrap-up of what we learned from him in his conversations in chapter 17. Through those conversations, we clearly see that David did not approach uh, the situation the same same as anyone else. He had a very different context. He refers to Goliath as simply an uncircumcised Philistine with no regard to his height. While the men spoke of Goliath uh, defying Israel, David says he's defying the armies of the living God. Saul tried bribing, as John showed us last week, Saul tried bribing the men to fight Goliath. David said, no, I will step up and I will show them how to do it. I mean, David expresses his absolute trust and reliance upon God because he drew on his past experiences where God had showed himself faithful. Saul didn't have those spare experiences, so he didn't trust God, and so he couldn't say things that way. And I especially love when David went face-to-face with Goliath. David said, you come with me with sword, spear, and shield, but I came to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. I will defeat you, and I will defeat your army. I will cut off your head and feed the carcasses of your army to the wild animals, and I will do this for one purpose and one purpose only, so that the world will know that God dwells in Israel. Who says this? Who does this? One who's devoted to God. That's who. It wasn't even just the way in which he, the words he spoke. It was the way he said it. He had confidence. He had boldness. He had swagger. So by the time he got back to Saul and Saul debriefed him with Goliath's Goliath's head in his hand, this is just me now. This is the preacher's translation. Boom. I told you. (laughs) And when Jonathan saw that, that's what he wanted. He realized what was going on. But can you see how the context affected his conversations? David's conversations were powerful enough to convince Jonathan to pledge his undying loyalty to David because of David's role in God's plan. Okay? For David, trust in God was the real power behind Israel, and he showed that. Trust in God ought to be the real power behind our lives as well. And if we fall in line with that truth, it will show up in our conversations. But what does that look like for us today? Let me show you how that might work out. About a month ago, about a month and a half ago, I had this wonderful opportunity to be able to share Christ with someone. I'd known her for a little while, and I got to know her pretty well. One day when we were working together, she told me that her young daughter had gone into rehab for alcohol and marijuana abuse. And when she said that, it, it, it touched me because her child and my child are around the same age. And so I asked the Lord, if you would, just give me an opportunity to be able to share you with her. And he did. And we were talking, and she was relaying to me what was going on with her daughter. And I said, you know, can I ask you a strange question? I said, with everything that you're going through, have you ever considered a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know what her response was? You know, I always thought it was my responsibility to be able to get to, from point A to point B. And you know what I asked her? What's point A? She nodded her head after she paused. And her silent acknowledgement was she had no idea. You see what the problem is, right? She had no context. And I told her as much. I said, only Jesus Christ can even make sense of what you're going through and why. And only he can give you the true context of your life. 
Well, she made another point during our conversation. She said, you know, discipline has never been something that I really believed in. I, didn't, I just never really saw the, the point in it. It just was a, really, a real waste of time. I said, hey, I don't mean to be insensitive, but discipline could have helped save your child from going to rehab. She began to tear up. Now, I didn't beat her up too much. So you'd be happy to know that the conversation ended actually well. Okay? And the beauty of it is that we are still talking. So you see how these two work together? Are you beginning to see how the context, the proper context, steers your conversation? I mean, conversations? Because what we get to do is when we allow the proper context in living with God's plan steer our conversations, what we then get to do is to be able to provide context for those who have lost their way. We get to provide context for those who have lost their way. And what are we seeing today? People have lost their way. Now we know that Jesus Christ is God's plan for mankind. He makes demands on our lives for our good but for his glory. And this is where our lives find meaning. We know this as believers. We may sometimes forget and we may need to be reminded, but that is the actual truth. Fall in line with him, everything else in our life falls in line as well. Now, you guys still with me? Okay, all right. Now, I know that talking is one thing. We could talk a good game, but if we're not walking the walk, whatever we're saying could be all for naught. In other words, our conduct is important, okay? Now, earlier I mentioned that phrase that David finding success. The King James actually renders it behaving himself wisely. And the idea behind that is that David found success mainly because of, number one, God was with him. But he actually made wise decisions and acted appropriately in different circumstances. Okay? Let's look at this next section of the scriptures so we can get a better picture of what I'm talking about. And I want you to keep in mind the contrast between David's uh, behavior and Saul's behavior. Okay? I'm going to pick up from verse 6. When the men were returning home after David uh, had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing, dancing, with joyful songs, and with temples and lyres. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry with this refrain, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in the house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the the king's son-in-law? 
So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now, as we see, as they return from the battle, the women come out to greet Saul. They meet him with music, dance, and song. But the song bothered Saul. David was credited with killing tens of thousands, and Saul only thousands. And he became very angry, and paranoia began to set in. Did you notice the first thing that he thought of? The kingdom. From this point on, Saul has his watchful eye, a jealous eye toward David. Now imagine this. David just secured an incredible victory for Israel. From what we have read so far, David didn't show any signs of it going to his head. But yet Saul was troubled deeply. Instead of rejoicing, Saul begins the slow descent into madness. And it gets worse. The next day, Saul has one of his attacks again. Alex had mentioned a couple of weeks back about these attacks that Saul had. And they brought David in to help. But when the passage says he was prophesying, the better rendering is that he was raving like a madman. Okay? And David was playing the liar in an attempt to calm him down. But instead, Saul grabs a spear and tries to pin David to the wall twice. But get this. Saul was afraid of David. And Saul was the one that tried to kill David. This is the Looney Tunes show starring Bugs and Daffy. And Saul is both Bugs and Daffy. Okay? Saul could not even stand the thought of having David with him, so he sends him away and gives him a command over a thousand troops. But yet again, we read of the success of David. Everything David did, he had great success. But do you see how David's conduct is coming through? Even after Saul tries to pin David to the wall, keep in mind, David doesn't try to run away. Saul sends him away. You have to ask the question, why? See, back in verse 10, Saul had his attack. David was playing playing the liar as he usually did. So Saul's behavior was not new to David. He is used to seeing him do this, maybe not to the degree where he's trying to pin him to the wall, but this was what he he was used to. David focuses on his responsibilities, which is to defend Israel. And even though Daphne was on the throne, he still followed orders. Now, on seeing David's further success, Saul's fear for David continues to grow. Everybody loved David except for Saul. For the first time in a very long time for Israel, they found a commander that had consistent success against the Philistines. You can tell from the passage that hope was starting to return to Israel. Unfortunately, Saul did not share in that hope. Instead, he was spending his time plotting on how he should kill David. Saul steeps so low that he begins to use his children as a bait to get David killed. Now, mind you, technically speaking, David had already won the right to marry one of his children. That was the reward for the person who had defeated Goliath, and David did defeat Goliath. Now, if this were not so sad, Saul's behavior, it would actually be comical. Every time David goes against the Philistines, he wins. But yet Saul thinks sending him against the Philistines is going to get him killed. It just doesn't make any sense. It's just crazy. But we do now see why Samuel said to Saul that the kingdom would be ripped or torn from him. Unlike Jonathan, Saul would not fall in line with God's plan. He was fighting against God's man. And since he was not willing to give up the throne 
or the kingdom, it would be taken from him. But look at David's response to Saul's offer of his daughter. David could have, he could have reminded the king that he already won the right. But instead, he shows humility. He shows humility because of his social status. But I think it's more to that. Let's read this last section of the passage, and I'll explain to you why I say that. Starting from verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They, they repeated these words to David. But David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins. I am not going to talk about that, okay? All right. <laughs> to take for revenge on my enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out of the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Saul was presented with yet another opportunity to use his now his youngest daughter, to trap David. Michal was in love with David, and when Saul finds out, he wastes no time. He sends his servants to warm up David to the idea of marrying her. But look at David's response, though. You heard what he said? Do you think it's a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? You know what his, his concern was? The bride price. And this shows us that David, despite his fame and his success, he did not forget his social customs of his day, nor the responsibilities that came with it. He remained humble. I think that the reason why he didn't get to marry Mirab, it could be that there's duplicity with Saul. He may have pulled a different trick on David. But I think that David still was concerned about the bride price even with her. And he may have declined the offer. And we see this because of the way he responded in this section. But when he finds out that all he has to do is kill some Philistines, David takes him up. He not only just takes him up, he brings back twice the required amount, and he does it earlier than the allotted time. He wins himself a bride and becomes son-in-law to the king. And after this, it became very clear to Saul that the Lord was with David. And with that, with his daughter now in love with him, Saul's fear of David grew even more. So much so, he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. But do you see how David conducted himself? He displays a willingness to submit, self-control, respect, humility, and responsibility, just to name a few. His behavior is in keeping with his proper context. As it relates to Saul, David never really changes his attitude or his behavior to Saul. 
we will see later in the story that David is presented with a couple of opportunities to be able to kill Saul because Saul is so bent on trying to kill him. But instead, David doesn't take the bait. And you know the reason why he says that? He says, my hand will not be raised. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He maintained the proper context, and that affected his conduct. In David's mind, God anointed Saul to be king. God never gave him permission to kill Saul, so he would let God take care of Saul. He submits his life to God and executes God's plan, and not his own. Now, allow me to make my last point, and we'll wrap up. Now, the thing that we cannot miss in this chapter is how David developed as a warrior. In other words, he perfected a craft. And when I say craft, think skill set, okay? So much so, he perfected this so much so that the Philistines became more aware of him than any of Saul's other commanders. He was the most successful against them. But I hope you don't miss that. David went from an unknown poor shepherd boy to the champion and defender of Israel. While he did not need a sword to defeat Goliath, he later learned to use a sword to lead men and to show them who they could be. He mustered the courage of the army against the, uh, an enemy, and in the process, he showed an entire nation what she was capable of. David was one man, and look at the impact that he had. Now, in a similar way, Jesus did not have to come the way he did. He became a human being and lived among us. What we see in his life is the way we are supposed to live and what we were meant to be. We are the beneficiaries of abundant blessings because of what he did. But keep in mind, some of those blessings were meant to be exercised. Okay? Like David, Jesus leads, sets the example, and invites us to come alongside him to fight against our enemy, the devil. While victory is already secured, the battle is far from over. So this fight, it requires effective craftsmanship. Now, one of the things that you can't miss, well, I'll share this with you. One of the things that I cannot seem to escape is this preaching thing. Try as I might, I no longer can avoid it. I continue to get a good, strong sense from God that this is what he wants me to do. Apparently, God and Ed have been talking because Ed won't let me get away with it either. (laughs) But guess what? You are the ones that I get to cut my teeth on. Blame Ed for that if you want, okay? Now, I have to perfect this gift because I don't know what God has in store for me for the future. There are things about my personality that preaching helps to force out, but it also helps to build in. It drives out fear and laziness, but it builds in discipline and trust in God. Now, I'm sure there are other skills that will develop in me, but make no mistake, this is my training ground. I have to be actively engaged in perfecting this gift so when my number is called, I'm ready. But it's not just me. All of you, too. We are in this together. So you may not be called on to preach, but you will be called on to do something, and you too need to be ready. The standing mandate for the church is that we make disciples. This is a full contact sport, and it requires multiple skill sets. Do you know yours? Are you actively engaged in perfecting them? 
because you never know when your number is going to be called. Well, let me wrap up. A devoted life has impact as we learn from David. He impacted the entire nation. As impactful as David was, though, he was merely a glimpse of one greater, and that's Jesus. Jesus' impact is not simply temporal. It is eternal, and we get to share in that. But it requires something of us. We must live our lives in the proper context, which will affect the way we conversate, and it will also affect our conduct. Our craft as a church and as individuals is to develop this craft effectively. We must make disciples. We're living in a time where violence is rising and hope is diminishing. But we get the incredible joy of pointing people to Jesus because he is the hope of all the nations. God's people say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that we can look into your word. And with the violence of all that's going on, Lord God, we know that we we can't lose hope because we trust in Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to go into your word and look at the life of your man, the one you said was a man after your own heart. And there are many lessons there, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help to solidify these in our hearts. So when others ask and we see the fear and desperation in their eyes, we can talk to them and share Jesus with them. As we dismiss today, let us not forget this. I commit this to you even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, everybody. Have a great week.